You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm the author of the novel Champion of the World and a lead writer at BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Now, Ben, in the interest of full disclosure, I feel like the listening audience needs to know that not only did you show up 20 minutes late to record the show today, which in and of itself would not be remarkably late for you. 17 minutes because late. Because you are... 17, not 20. The fact that you would differentiate between 17 and 20 <laughs> minutes late, I think, is going to tell the people oh, everything they need oh, to know. You know, look who selectively loves full disclosure. Isn't that interesting? Not... not not that that would de- differentiate your normal performance, since I know that you're basically operating on Brazilian time all the time as it concerns the recording of this podcast. Hey. But you uh, ruthless, I would say ruthlessly, threw your wife under the bus. I the text that I received said that you were going to be late, and in the same text it said, but it's Sarah's fault, and Sarah is your wife. Both those things are true. I'm just, I thought that the people would want to know exactly who they're dealing with. Listen, I did not, I, I wasn't particularly angry about it. I didn't say anything negative about her. All I did was relay the facts. Was that it's my, it's her fault that I am late today. Could and you, she will, she will, she will accept that. Can you tell us why? Is it anything you want to let us in on or? She's just out running errands with the car and I'm home with the kids waiting for her to get back so I can leave to come here. And then, you know, she just, she did not get back in time. And in her defense, you know, it's. The holiday season, the roads are bad. Yeah, especially up here. I noticed on the north side, they're already doing their uh, what Select- I call, what I refer to as the north side plowing, which is waiting for the spring thaw. Yeah, selective plowing. <laughs> well, selective implies that there is some being done. Um, so yeah, you know, it's not it's not necessarily something she did on purpose or being inconsiderate, but it is something she did. So I think we should all make our peace with that. Well, I guess the people can decide. They've heard both sides now, and uh, we'll just allow them to reach their own decision. I'm comfortable with that. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company built for the way guys operate. We'd like to remind you guys to support the companies that support the CME. The fine gentlemen at Fulton & Rourke sent us some of their new face wash this past week, and it is totally dope. It's formulated with eucalyptus tea tree, lemon verbena, and green tea extract. And on top of all that, it makes your face feel clean and soft and not weird and all dried out. So Fulton & Rourke offers a dynamite line of wax-based cologne fragrances. So even if you think cologne's not your thing, you might want to check this stuff out. It's not overpowering and gross like when your uncle used to lather on the Aqua Velva. Fulton & Rourke stuff smells great, and just a dab here or there will allow you to take control of your personal odor instead of letting your personal odor control you. I'm not sure exactly what that means. You know what it means. But I like you it. You especially know what it means. Go online to FultonandRourke.com. That's R-O-A-R-K. And check out their complete line of products. I just re-upped on the bar soap, which is amazing. I use the foam-free shaving cream every time I shave. Fulton and Rourke changed my whole grooming routine. But if that's not good enough for you, how about this? You can go to the website and enter the promo code CME and save 15% on your order. 
Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, a week ago, I wasn't sure anybody knew who Rafael Dos Anjos was. This week, I'm not sure anybody really wants to fight him. And in round two, I want a fight that's worth my while, worth his while. Let's get our fight on. I don't care if it's all good or if it's not all good. When we fight, we're going to fight. A fight fight, for real fight. He thinks he's the ninja, I'm the ninja. Ninja Gaiden, American ninja, real motherfucking ninja. This ninja martial artist right here, I started that shit. That shit came from Stockton with us, me and my team. You know what I'm saying? All that. Like I said, double impact, Lionheart, American ninja right here. American ninja, Irish ninja. Represent your shit, homeboy, right here. Hashtag real motherfucking ninja. And in round three, a big win for Alistair Overeem this past weekend. Up next for him could be a UFC title shot. Or maybe he winds up going to Dubai and fighting fucking Jeff Monson on a balance beam, balance beam surrounded by alligators. Who knows with this guy? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Uh, the first piece of listener mail comes to us from Brady Carlson. He writes, guys, can we talk about the motherfucking barn cat, Tamden McCrory? We can talk about it. Awesome skills, nerdy, bitchin' nickname, what's not to like. Yeah. You know, for those of us who have not paid that much attention to the barn cat when he reappeared in Bellator, he seems to have grown into his man body, so to speak. And I'm not just talking about the tattoos and the male pattern baldness. He seems like he is just physically transformed from the nerdy kid we remember from the early UFCs, like 2009 era UFCs. Yeah, you know, I I guess I maybe maybe it was because of the male pattern baldness, but I did not realize how young he was. Maybe I just didn't remember like what an actual borderline kid he was when he first made his uh, his debut in the UFC back in in 2007. Uh, so yeah, he took what six years off from MMA and now he has returned and is somehow still just 29 years old. He had two fights in Bellator, both of which he finished, uh, in really, really short fashion. The first one was only 29 seconds long and the second one was a minute and six seconds long. Uh, and then I think he maybe realized, Ben, that nobody was paying attention to his run through Bellator because it, uh, I was getting some emails from people at Bellator about how they were about, they were on the verge of scheduling a, a middleweight title fight. And then those, those emails suddenly just stopped. And about 24 hours later, Tamden McCrory signed with the UFC. So, uh, it seems so like you're maybe, saying what's really going on. Seems like maybe he left Bellator in the lurch a little bit there, but I, I don't think you can blame him. I guess also we should point out he's riding this three fight win streak. That's also all been at the middleweight division. So maybe a bunch of things all came together for Tamden McCrory at the same time. Not only did he, did he grow into his grown man body, his adult male, his, his grown man strength. Uh, but he's also he, found his dad's strength. He, he changed weight classes. Uh, he's a little bit older now. Uh, and it, it appears that that time off he took maybe to sharpen his skills really paid off. Uh, had a, a really fun fight this past weekend with, with Josh Saman. Ended up winning that by triangle choke in the third round. Uh, but for the grappling enthusiast out there, just, uh, that's the kind of thing I could watch all day. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really fun style to watch too because he's just constantly attacking from all over the place. He never stops. He's not like just trying to look for position and solidify it and stay there. And at times is attacking to the detriment of his position and doesn't really worry about that. Like, hey, you, you roll him over, put him on his back. He feels, I guess, like he's just as dangerous there. Uh, 
Interesting thing I learned from his Wikipedia page. Okay. His wife, Haley, is the morning news anchor for WBNG-TV in Binghamton, New York. Interesting. That yeah. is a fun fact. Yeah. Did you notice that during the uh, during his fight that his his cornermen were referring to him as Cat? Oh, it's just, like, that's That's what awesome. they call him? Let's get it, Cat. Yeah. And see... That's why you need you need somebody in your crew to have a nickname like that, just so you can. It'd just be so fun. You'd find yourself coming up with all kinds of reasons to throw that one around. If you, oh wait, I can't. Just... You want the crust cut off this sandwich, or are you just you're old? Okay, no, fine. I was just I was just wondering. I didn't want to give you a sandwich you didn't like, cat. I just now saw Josh Saman's Wikipedia photo. Are you familiar with it? No, but I'm looking at He's it. He's right got now. short hair, un- unlike the the. Uh, the pony to multiple ponytails. It looked like he was rocking in the fight against uh, Tamden McCrory. He's he's got a shaved head. He's wearing a red polo shirt, uh, and he has a black eye. And if you haven't seen the look on his face, you should just check it out. It's, I'm not even sure that's really him. I think it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're right though. It could it could be someone different. I was gonna say if you are Tamden McCrory, and like we always say about Damian Maya recording his. Uh, jujitsu instructional video i feel like if you are going to record the tamden mccrory jujitsu instructional video you want the guy you're beating to look like josh saman yeah right you yeah, want you him do. to because josh saman also uh pretty good columnist over at bloody elbow yeah uh so multi-talented guy looks terrific getting off the bus yeah he does you might say the physical opposite of tamden mccrory that's the guy you want to beat up yeah. If you are the barn the, cat. the guy who looks like the the star of Renegade. What yeah. was that dude's name? He looks like a dude that kicked sand in your face on the beach. Yeah. Well, he got himself in some trouble this time. Kicked sand in the wrong nerd's face. <laughs> well, yeah, now that's as good a name for the Tam Dan McCrory instructional DVD as any, I guess. Uh, do you anything else you want to say on Tam Dan McCrory as the jujitsu correspondent of the Co-Main Event podcast? No, I was just really into it. I was too. Good to see him back. Oh, yeah. you know what else? I feel like even though we always talk about how it's really easy to rip into the like live broadcast announcers, you don't, or at least I don't realize how little Mike Goldberg is adding to his, his like base of knowledge until you see a guy like Tamden McCrory who hasn't been in the UFC for six years. And midway through the fight, you realize that Mike Goldberg is saying all of the stuff that he would have said about Tamden McCrory six years ago in the UFC. <laughs> like he's just, it's like he dusted off a, an old file folder that said Tamden McCrory. Just found that note and card. And was just like, this yeah. stuff is still good. Yeah. It's all about like him attending an Eddie Bravo seminar to learn the rubber guard. Like, I feel like we could come up with some new, some new bits <laughs> yeah. on Tamden McCrory. You know, I have, I, not to get too far off on a tangent, I wondered too how much time the commentators are spending talking to these fighters before the fights. I know Brian Stan spends a good amount of time, but it also seems like Brian Stan probably does more pre-show research than anybody else in the game. But when Joe Rogan, um, seemed to feel like he needed a translator, uh, for, uh, I'm going to call her Special K so I don't have to pronounce her last name, the, the female Polish fighter who won. And she was like, no, 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 I can do English. And then when she started talking, you're like, oh, yeah, no, you, you can do English very well, in fact. Uh, if he'd had a conversation with you, it seems like he would have known that. Uh, it made you just wonder, are you are you spending much time, you know, kind of Monday night football style sitting down beforehand with these people to talk to them so that you kind of feed your knowledge base to know what to talk about. Cause that would be helpful. I think. Well, the fact that it's so notable that Brian Stan does it, like that's one of the things that people always mention about Brian Stan makes you think that 
the rest of the people probably aren't doing that. Yeah, probably not. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, you would not be remiss if you did not hear about the California State Athletic Commission summit they had this week on weight cutting. Wait, I'm confused. Yeah, I know. That was, uh, I think we misused remiss there. I I think we just went awkward. Okay. We got off to an awkward start. Does he mean that I would not be alone if I did not hear about it? Okay, just keep going. Uh, given all the MMA content in the last two weeks, or in my case, Googling an uncensored version of Nathan Diaz's profanity-laden post-fight speech of awesomeness, the CSAC is proposing uh, the induction of the 165, 175, 225, and 265-pound divisions and removing the 170-pound division to help combat the dangers of weight cutting. It's a complicated topic as it will be difficult to prevent fighters from excessively cutting weight anyway. Another quote-unquote rule change without a fighter representative and too many champions. More importantly, the CSAC admission that any changes they make would not be binding but rather voluntary. I put this out to you to discourse as to what you think of this actually happening and its effectiveness. So the point of the question gets across there, even if we got off to a rocky start. Yeah. You know, the weight classes thing, that's the one where... I feel like I could talk myself into it either way. My my first reaction is I don't know if that's going to help any. I, I think, think it makes it worse, don't you? Like if you t- if you're like if you are a 190 pound man and okay. you're cutting a bunch of weight to get to 170, but you think to yourself, I'll, I could never make it to 155, and then suddenly they add that 165 pound weight class, you're just going to cut five more pounds, right, than you ever did before. So I, I don't. I'm not sure. I see the. You're just going to have more guys trying to make lightweight, as is what I think ultimately happens, or trying to make all these different weight divisions. Yeah, I also can see that being a problem where, as we've talked about before, the fighter's false friend. Somebody runs into kind of a dead end in one division or another and thinks, all right, what can I do to revitalize my career and maybe give myself another chance? I'll go down a division. And if they're every 10 pounds, then maybe I can keep going down a little more and keep playing that game a little longer than otherwise I would have. I guess maybe then that's when we get into the other things that they want to add in there because it's not just weight classes. Right. Like if you're saying, if you if you were just to do the weight classes thing, you probably would ultimately make it worse. Um, I just wonder if you could even get the powers that be in this sport to go along with even that. Uh, because as this question points out, you don't really have the power to slam down a gavel and tell them, Listen up. This is how it is now. I think especially the UFC prides itself at times in having learned from the mistakes of boxing. And I think if you went to the UFC, I mean, who knows? Maybe part of the UFC would, the executives would hear that and think more champions means more people we could potentially call pound for pound greatest fighter in the world every goddamn week. Okay, great. More title fights. Uh, that, that's maybe a good idea for them. I also think though that they might hear that and think, we're drifting toward that boxing model and it's going to kill us. Yeah. The weight cutting thing is tricky because I feel like any and all um, fixes that I've heard kind of feel like they come as a double-edged sword. Like they, there would always be ways to get around it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, it's just a thing where I feel like it'd be really, it's a really hard fix unless you create some kind of invasive, uh, baseline 
data. You know, like you're just basically weighing people all the time. Like yeah. you're having uh, surprise weigh-ins like you do surprise uh, drug tests now. And obviously it's a lot less invasive to show up and weigh somebody than it is to like take their blood and, and test them for PEDs. But I feel like the difference being with weight cutting well, with PEDs, you're trying to prevent someone from cheating in a way that will harm someone else. Yes. And with weight cutting, you're trying to prevent someone from doing something that will only harm themselves. Yes. And well, I mean, I would argue that the PEDs thing is also about harming themselves. Sure. But, you know, that's a, that's the B section to right. it. For me, the rationale would be we don't want you to get juiced up and kill somebody in the cage. Whereas weight cutting, it's kind of like wearing your seatbelt. Like you, you, that's just a, a decision that's only going to kill you in the end. And so I feel like you have less of a moral justification to become really invasive and go into these people's lives to like, you know, figure out how much they weigh all the time. I think like the ultimate answer is with weight cutting, you can just educate people. You can provide them with all of this information. Uh, and, and someone was saying that they were going to, they were thinking about like creating a, a, a basically a, a medical uh, tool that people could use where they could figure out what's the safest weight cut floor for them to reach. Uh, but I think all you can do is kind of educate people and then hope that they don't like misuse the the tool or that they don't kill themselves weight cutting because obviously we had uh, tragically a fighter pass away at, at one FC a couple weeks ago and so it's a it's a dangerous thing and and uh, kind of a dark side of the sport sort of uh, situation but I also don't think that you can do a lot to to stop it. Yeah, it seems like one of those things where what you really need is a culture change in MMA in order. I think also one thing that you might need is some people to lead by example and to show or lead by counterexample in, in certain instances and to show that for one thing, it doesn't do you that much good to be the bigger dude if you hamper your own performance just to get down there. Like if you have to do such an extreme weight cut that you're not a hundred percent on fight night, how valuable is it to be, you know, seven or eight pounds bigger than your opponent once you guys actually get in the cage? I think that some people are starting to see that a little now. I think especially you see some fighters who are having success fighting a little bit higher than they might absolutely have to. And, you know, maybe that helps somewhat over time. But I also think that the real danger is not so much that uh, a dude in a UFC main event is going to have a bad weight cut and have something terrible happen to him. It's that the dudes who are on the prelims or who are in some other minor show are hearing, Oh, this guy cuts 30 pounds, uh, and then puts it all back on right after the weigh-ins and he's super successful. He's a UFC champion. Okay. I'll do that too. And they don't have the knowledge or the help, uh, from experts around them to actually do it safely. And that's where I think you really get into danger. Next question this week comes to us from Jared McKenzie. He writes, can you guys talk a little bit about the casual fan and Conor McGregor's insane success? I follow MMA through this podcast, Brendan Schaub's podcast and Joe Rogan's podcast. Outside of that information, I follow no, follow no MMA personalities on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever. I feel like if I wasn't taking in these media sources, I would have no idea who Conor McGregor is. And yet, I'm hearing that he's more famous than Brock Lesnar. Uh, <laughs> that's our, I like that that's our gauge. That says something to, to even begin with. <laughs> Not even really a question, but you guys are smart and should be able to figure something out. I wonder about this too. Wait, I'll, is Brock Lesnar our Beatles? Like we use it like bigger yeah. than bigger than the Beatles. That's yes. for MMA. It's but bigger if, than Brock Lesnar. The Beatles would kill and then pick up an entire male deer and carry it out of the woods on his back. Okay, that's our version of the Beatles. I wondered about this more 
uh, as it pertained to a guy like Sage Northcutt recently, where the UFC will kind of come out and proclaim someone a superstar, yeah. right? When there really isn't any metric or numbers to back that up. And I guess maybe that was sort of the case with Conor McGregor, uh, during his first couple few UFC fights. I guess you could say he really kind of, um, started making his march to superstardom with that Diego Brandao fight. Uh, and, and from there just kind of continued to get bigger and bigger. At least now we have some, some measure of his, uh, appeal and superstardom. And I think you can see it not only in the fanatical Irish following, like you don't see a lot of people who bring that kind of, uh, uh, in-house fan base to the table like McGregor does and like George St. Pierre used to with the Canadians. Uh, but you know, he, he fought Chad Mendez at UFC 189. And even though, uh, Jose Aldo had to pull out of that event, obviously, uh, they still ended up doing 825,000 pay-per-view buys according to, uh, Dave Meltzer's, uh, estimates. And that, is an awful lot. One of the biggest sellers of the UFCs of the year. And you got to think that that came mostly from McGregor, yeah. uh, especially since Jose Aldo wasn't even there. Um, and so I think we have some numbers now to, to, to back up the fact that Conor McGregor is one of the biggest stars in the UFC. Although I would also say that what we consider a big star kind of like Brock Lesnar, uh, it sometimes rings a lot more true inside the MMA bubble than maybe it does outside. Yeah. I also think it depends where you are, especially with Conor McGregor. Because I think that if you're an American the and you get your sports news from the main – I mean, obviously, you listen to the co-main event podcast because you're not an idiot. Right. First you, and foremost. You have some goddamn taste. But, you know, if you're watching ESPN or, or something like that or just you know, reading mainstream uh, general sports websites – then maybe you don't hear much about MMA at all, and Conor McGregor you might hear a little bit about. But I think if you're in Ireland, shit, you know, they're writing about him all the time, from what I can tell. They're, you know, more, uh, or just anywhere kind of close to Ireland and the UK, just generally, I think that they are uh, a little more aware of them. And they, I, I also, when you mentioned Sage Northcutt and the UFC's thing about declaring somebody a superstar, right. I think that one is a, a better example. Because Conor McGregor, you can see him on like talk shows. He's starting to get to that level where before his fight, you know, Jimmy Kimmel might actually want to talk to him, something yep. like that. Yep. Because he's interesting as a personality, too, to have on. He's not just interesting as a fighter. Um, but like somebody with Sage Northcutt, somebody on Twitter pointed out to me and an awesome lit nerd uh, joke about Sage Northcutt that he is the most photographed barn in America from Don DeLillo's White Noise, um, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's actually very funny, but also like where there's a barn and it's a sign up and out in front of the barn that says the most fo photographed barn in America, which then makes people want to come and take pictures of it, which then makes it true that it's the most photographed barn in America. And that's, I think, the UFC is, it seems dabbling in that kind of promotion a little bit more where okay we found this guy we think we can make him into something um just by saying that he already is something over and over again loudly enough and it works even if even if it works in the sense that of like guys like us being like what the hell man what are we trying to pull here it still works it still gets people to talk about him and with conor mcgregor i mean you got to give the guy credit because he takes advantage almost every time he gets himself on a big stage or on a place where someone might see him, which I think is uh, part of the trick of being a, a crossover mainstream superstar because people, uh, you know, casual fans or people that might have a passing interest in fighting, but don't really buy UFC pay-per-views will often stumble upon you by accident. And if you stumble upon a Chris Weidman appearance on, on sports center by accident, uh, you're probably not going to remember that. 
But if you stumble upon almost anything that Conor McGregor has done publicly, I feel like he's got the charisma, he's smart enough, he's got the, uh, you know, he's articulate enough, has the gift of gab that when you see him, like you're going to remember him. Yeah. Uh, which is you know one of his biggest strengths, I think, as a promoter. And, uh, you know, not only is it attracting the casual fan, but it's clearly making him the most wanted man in the UFC, which I think we'll talk about a lot more during this show, since everybody at the damn UFC on Fox 17, basically under 170 pounds, called the guy out after they won yeah. last weekend. So something's working for him. Last question this week comes to us from Gary Newsom. He writes, Sweet Helio's ghost. I know it's been a week, and there were 30 other fights that weekend, but can we take a second to revel in the sublime jujitsu in the Gunnar Nelson Damian Maya fight? Maya's single legs were beautiful. Gunnar step back to maintain top position was beautiful. Maya's recounter to take back was even more beautiful. Even after a wall-to-wall grapple domination, Gunner finds the ability to hit a perfect hitchhiker escape to survive Maya's armbar. Easily the best jujitsu on display in an MMA fight. There was no question there. So where does Maya end up? And can pure jujitsu ace like he or him still climb the mountain to UFC gold? Discuss, cuz. I don't know if he's calling us cuz or he says we should discuss it just because let's not dwell on it but basically i included this question just for you thank you because last week we went a little weird with our with our uh format we ended up just talking mostly about conor mcgregor jose aldo i feel like we only mentioned the gunner nelson damian maya fight in passing to kind of make fun of gunner nelson for the movement coach not really paying off for him in the form of victories but i figured i would i would tee this up for you so you could nerd out a little bit okay so go well I would like to nerd out about that one because it was awesome. It was especially awesome considering who he did it against. I think it's one thing when uh, Demi Maia goes out there and dominates a guy like Ryan LaFleur, where it seems more like we've learned that LaFleur, for whatever hype might have been uh, attempted to attach to him, he wasn't, he wasn't there yet. He did not have the skills yet. Where Gunnar Nelson is a guy, especially on the ground, where you thought, he probably does, and Demi Maia made went out there, and it really wasn't even that close for most of the fight. The question as to whether a pure jujitsu guy, and I don't know, we can argue about whether we want to call Demi Maia a pure jujitsu guy, whether that kind of fighter can still be a UFC champion in what will soon be the year of our Lord 2016. I would say about anybody else, no. And yet Demi Maia, especially lately. I have to kind of say, well, maybe. Like in general, it feels like a question that's been answered already in MMA, and yet it seems like Demi and Maya, by being a jiu-jitsu guy, then kind of trying to round out his game, maybe falling in love with boxing a little too bit, and then coming back, especially at welterweight, uh, coming back to his roots as a jiu-jitsu guy. You you put him in there with Robbie Lawler, and I'd probably pick Robbie Lawler, but I can't say that Demi and Maya has no chance there. Yeah, he's won four fights in a row now at welterweight. Um, if you take a look at those UFC welterweight rankings, you see that Damian Maya doesn't actually have that far to go before you'd think he would be the number one contender for a title shot just because, you know, the guys in front of him are, are Carlos Condit, who's about to get a title shot against Robbie Lawler next month. Johnny Hendricks, who's kind of fallen out of favor, I guess you would say recently. He's been there a bunch of times. And then Tyron Woodley and, uh, Rory McDonald, who obviously just got his own shot at Robbie Lawler. So, uh, I don't You're know. saying the Hankings uh, might go in Demi Maya's favor? Yeah. <laughs> we well, you know what he thinks of the you Hankings. You know what's funny? 
he prefaced his uh, <laughs> his comments about that. So yeah, uh, he, clearly he's motivated around that, as we found out in his post fight interview. And uh, I don't know that you're going to be able to keep him away from the title uh, from a title shot here eventually if he keeps winning. The one thing that I would say might undermine his case is that it's not like he's going out here and tapping everybody out, right? Like he's he tapped out Neil Magny, and before that, his last submission was against Rick Story back in 2012. If you look at Damian Maya's win loss record, it's a whole lot of decisions, right? Uh, but right I mean, in a row. That's on paper, but if you actually watch the fights, like I don't think. Well, come on, nobody's actually watching the fights. I don't think. Uh... It's not like he's just using his jiu-jitsu to get in a top position and beat you up and not try to do a whole lot. Uh, I mean, he's he's still putting on a show, even if he's winning by decision. Sure. I'm just saying he's not he's not stopping very many people. Although I would say things in the welterweight division right now with Robbie Lawler as champion, it kind of feels wide open. Like, as you said, you would pick Robbie Lawler in that fight. But, you know, if Damian Maya went out there and did catch Lawler and something and tap him out, I don't think anyone would be bowled over with astonishment. Yeah. It'd be one of those things where basically you're waiting to see, can he get as many as one takedowns? And if he can, then... And that's one of the areas where Damian Maia, I feel like, has really improved, is with takedowns. Like, one of the, uh, you know, we we said it all the time, one of the things that it seemed like jujitsu guys were lacking for a really long time was that takedown ability, because, you know, they, they had the ability to end the fight, but they had to get in the proper position to do it. And to get there, you either had to be taken down and catch somebody off the bottom, or you had to be able to take people down. And Damian Maya, uh, at least I feel like, is going out there now and, and showing off some good wrestling takedowns and is able to put himself in position where he can win the fight. And not even fucking around with anything else. Just like I think in that Gunnar Nelson fight, it was within the first 10 seconds of the fight, he initiated a, a, a takedown attempt. So the days when Maya was going to stand there and try and box with Chris Weidman are over, it seems, and he's better for it. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on the days when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. If you don't like it, it's easy to unsubscribe. Give it a whirl. We think you'll like it. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we talked a little bit last week leading up to this fight about where Rafael Dos Anjos had been this whole year. He won the UFC lightweight title at UFC 185 in March over Anthony Pettis uh, and then kind of disappeared for a while. He was one of the more invisible champions that the UFC had this year, which the way all the champions went out and lost their titles was maybe good for him. Just he went into hiding so someone would not come along and steal the belt away from him. Brilliant. Uh, but then he shows up on Saturday at UFC on Fox 17 to fight Donald Cerrone in the main event. And holy cow, did Rafael Dos Anjos pick a good time to come out of hiding and remind us all who the hell he is. Because he tore through Cowboy Cerrone in a minute and six seconds uh, in a display that I ultimately felt maybe was too good. 
because uh, Dos Anjos just came out there and destroyed this guy that I think, if we can pull back the curtain a little bit, a lot of American fans and perhaps American promoters were really hoping was going to walk out of this thing with the title. Yeah, and it was not even close. Uh, that body shot, I think, is the thing that turns the tide, obviously, and, and Sorning didn't seem to recover from that. He said afterwards that he felt like he kind of mentally wasn't there either. But He always says that when he loses, though, which is maybe something we can talk about as this round goes on. But yeah, man, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. No, but, yeah, uh, it could totally be true. Um, but yeah, he just, as soon as he had him hurt, it was like, all right, Rafael Dos Anjos knows he has won and he is waiting for everybody else to figure it out. And yeah. that is kind of the, the look he gave. Uh, I think it was Big John McCarthy there as he was beating up on Donald Cerrone. Yeah, I think it was Herb up. Dean, but, uh, okay. again, it is the, you thinking about doing something here. Look, yes. we talked about before. I would say even before that, like clearly the body kick started the exchange that, that turtled Donald Cerrone up against the fence and then in the middle of the cage that caused the, the ultimate stoppage. But like really, really early on in this fight, they came out to the center of the cage, and Dos Anjos hit him with a left right in the face, and it kind of jacked Cerrone's head back. And I felt like right there was one of those things where you could feel all of the people at home be like, uh-oh. Yeah. And things just did not get better from there for Donald Cerrone. He ended up, uh, like I said, getting stopped in a minute and six seconds, which uh, which was not the fight or the performance, I think, that, that Donald Cerrone was hoping for. But a good reminder of, of who Rafael Dos Anjos is. Now he's beaten Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Nate Diaz, and Benson Henderson right in a row. Uh, that's a pretty good resume that he's got. And clearly he gets on the mic when it's over and he, he I guess, calls out uh, Conor McGregor. Eventually, essentially warned him not to come to lightweight, which I think was meant to be a call out. That's as close as he gets, I think, to a call out. And he, let's let's be honest, it was a significant outburst from a guy who's been <laughs> as quiet as Rafael Dos Anjos. He, as far as I can remember, he only showed up once this year, and that was at the Go Big press conference in September when he beefed with both Cerrone and Conor McGregor. But he gets this win. Uh, and he goes goes on the mic and, and does his best to call out Conor McGregor. But I, I'm going to come out and say, like I talked about a little bit last week, uh, I feel like Rafael Dos Anjos is not the fight that Conor McGregor wants right now. And not necessarily from an athletic standpoint, but I just feel like, and the, this feeling obviously has, has been compounded upon watching him tear through Donald Cerrone, Dos Anjos represents a really, really difficult style for McGregor to fight against. He looks more dangerous than ever now, and he's also going to provide you the lowest possible return, which makes me feel like unless Conor McGregor really is dead set on going up to 155 pounds and winning the title first things first, which I guess is what he said he would do. But if I were him or I was one of his handlers in charge of, of picking his fights, uh, I would not want Rafael Dos Anjos quite no. yet. The I mean, the only reason why you'd want that fight is because he has the belt. Just as far as the the juice that a fight like that would produce outside of the two titles on the line, it doesn't really do a whole lot for too many people, I don't think. Uh, and I mean, like you mentioned that go big press conference, the thing I remember about Rafael Dos Anjos from that press conference is by basically being the recipient of the red panty night line, forcing us all to imagine Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, going home to his wife and, and you know, what would ensue there, which thanks a lot, Conor McGregor. Yeah. Well, uh, too much information. Yeah. Uh, I think that as soon as I 
as soon as that fight was over, as soon as the Dos Anjos had successfully defended his title, my first thought was, if I'm Frankie Edgar, I'm thinking, good news. Yeah. You, good you, news for me. You might want to send Rafael Dos Anjos a Christmas card. That's right. From the chair, from the easy chair. Or you know Frankie Edgar has a stack of Christmas cards next to him that he's slowly been filling out all year. Takes out a fountain pen. So as not to get into a rush in December. He's been, <laughs> he's been trying to go after it a little bit at a time. I think you're right. I think that's the move for, for, uh, Conor McGregor right now, obviously, we'll talk about Nate Diaz a little bit more in round two, uh, which is also, I think, an enticing option for a guy like Conor McGregor. But let's stay at home at lightweight for the duration of this round. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos obviously gets a big win. He's probably not going to get Conor McGregor. Habib Nurmagomedov, who's officially your number two ranked fighter, is is eternally out with an injury. Uh, do, do we think about Tony Ferguson here, Al Kakui, or do we go with the winner of Anthony Pettis and Eddie Alvarez, which is coming up uh, next month. Uh, I th- I would rather see Tony Ferguson personally. Me too. And yeah, because he's going to go out there and roll around like a crazy person. Yeah, we he's know just going to do some shit. And that might, you know what? That's probably another fight that if it's the main event of a of a card, you might want to put that on Fox as well. Not necessarily try to sell that on pay per view, but uh, I don't see, especially considering the style with which Rafael Dos Anjos fought this fight. I feel like. At least I have this vision of him in my head as a, as a pressure fighter, but a guy who uses takedowns and top control a lot to grind out decisions. And clearly in this one, he came out there, uh, and was expeditious and effective in, in getting a, a TKO stoppage, which was very impressive. So I think it, it'd be fun to watch him fight Tony Ferguson. I think at this point, that is a fight, that's a fight that shapes up as kind of exciting. Yeah, I, and I think think too that if your options are between that and the winner of Anthony Pettis and Eddie Alvarez, I think that if it's Pettis, it feels like we've seen that one pretty recently. If it's Alvarez, I don't know. I think just imagining the two of them standing next to each other uh, would make me feel like Eddie Alvarez might get crushed there, but who knows? He's proved uh, to be a pretty tough guy. Uh, I don't know. I think that you need... You need some kind of powerful personality opposite Rafael Dos Anjos if you're the UFC trying to generate interest in the fight because he's not really going to do it on his own, as we've learned. Uh, I think Tony Ferguson, not only uh, he seems like an interesting enough dude who's kind of recently got on to the idea that he can promote himself outside the cage and, as we've said, going to go in there, roll around, try some shit. Uh, that would be interesting to me. I'd be all for that. Yeah, I agree. Hashtag would watch. Uh, let's wrap this round up with some talk about Donald Cerrone, obviously a big-time fan favorite, the Cowboy. Uh, he had won eight fights in a row, but that win streak now sandwiched around two losses to Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, he does have this like kind of self-admitted uh, uh, reputation as a slow starter and a guy who, who doesn't necessarily come out of the gate guns blazing. And, he, you know, at least in the aftermath of this loss, it seemed like that uh, psychologically, psychologically was, was how he was dealing with it. Um, but moving forward, I'm, I, I don't know, does this affect Donald Cerrone that much? I feel like this is kind of a uh, referendum on him ever becoming the champion. But at the same time, I feel like he can also just kind of go right back to being Donald Cerrone, face a couple of Adriano Martins type dudes, and, uh, you know, probably win five more fights again in 2016 if that's what he wants to do. Yeah. I, I guess what remains to be seen is how he'll bounce back from it. Because you hear his comments afterwards, he seemed pretty crushed, and he also seemed like, uh, his, I think his remark was that he didn't even know if the UFC would want to call him after that performance, which, 
I can probably put your mind at ease there. I think that they're going to want to call you. Uh, but as long as it does not throw him into some kind of tailspin of, of depression that keeps him from getting in the gym, I think you're right. I think he can still be basically a money fighter going out there, putting on good performances, can be relied on to keep getting in the cage every opportunity you give him. And maybe, who knows, maybe that's the best Donald Cerrone for everybody, uh, is the one who fights a whole hell of a lot, makes pretty good money doing it. Uh, maybe it would have been kind of a bummer to see him, in a way, saddled with the championship and be forced to fight only you know, a, a reasonable three times a year. I was thinking about this after the fight, and I honestly don't know the answer to it, but do we ever concern ourselves with the idea that, that uh, you know, Cerrone with the RV breaking down on the way to Orlando and the constant, you know, showing up at the fights the week before a title fight and, and I'm going to guess having a couple of Budweiser's going out on the lake doing his media stuff from the back of some guy's jet boat. Uh, I could see if this was someone else and maybe in a different era where UFC president Dana White was still cutting promos on guys. I could see him raising questions about maybe Donald Cerrone has all the tools but doesn't have the proper mindset. Which, again, like I said, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say about Donald Cerrone. I think he probably does that stuff because of what he's figured out about his own mindset. I, just from conversations I've had with him in the past where he talks about the hardest thing for him in the fight game being having all this time to sit around and think about the fight beforehand. And I think that he purposely fills his life with all these other things so that he does not have to sit around and dwell on those things. And I, don't, I mean, if you want to point at like one fight that he lost in recent memory and say, okay, and to the lightweight champion, the guy who's supposedly the best lightweight on the planet right now and say, aha, this is proof that, you know, your mind is in the wrong place or your priorities are fucked up. I don't know. That seems a little too selective. I think that he's he's kind of found a groove that works for him, but that doesn't mean you might not still go out there and get beat up by Rafael Dos Anjos some night. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to believe or to agree with you, and and I don't think anyone wants a different cowboy, right? No. We want the cowboy that we know and love. Yeah, we want the cowboy that when they show up to film the like the documentary about the the BMF ranch, the very first thing out of his mouth of the eight minute video is quote unquote teaching motherfuckers how to live, man. When they ask him what he's up to. I think that's uh, the cowboy we all want. Speaking of guys driving around in RVs, how many times a day do you think Clay Guida mentions to his training partners that he beat this dude, Rafael Dos Anjos, who's the champ now? Uh, probably, well, twice, probably once for both sessions. Okay. He wants to make sure, just in case, if you only showed up for the afternoon, that, that you hear it, if Does, you weren't there for the morning. Does he get to a point where he's hoping somebody else will bring him up so, yeah, so yes. that he can talk about it? Uh-huh, yeah. Hey, did you guys see that Dos Anjos fight? Last weekend? No, he just, he'd, you know, he'd just be like, I, I don't know if you guys saw that there was a UFC last weekend. Anybody see the UFC last weekend? And wait for somebody else to say something and then boom, you're off and running. Hear that story about how you broke Rafael Dos Anjos' jaw. All right, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, I, I know that you took note of this on Twitter, but if you needed a clear visual representation of one of the main problems with the UFC Reebok partnership this past weekend, you got one during Cole Miller's walkout for his fight against Jim Allers. Uh, when the UFC or Fox, I don't know who is it, who is responsible for it, camera crew, passed right by Cole Miller and zoomed in on one of his random corner men during the walkout and then stayed there until the corner man kind of awkwardly pointed at Miller like, uh, the guy that you want is right there. Are you fucking kidding me? Everybody looks the same now. They're all wearing the same outfit. We don't even know 
who Cole Miller is. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Well, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? We touched on it a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions last week, but uh, UFC CEO Lorenzo Fertitta has laid out what he thinks Ronda Rousey's 2016, or the first half of her 2016, is going to look like, and it includes doing two movies and then rematching Holly Holm. Which, I have to say, are you fucking kidding me? That seems like a terrible idea. I, like, it seems as if we are putting up more roadblocks to Ronda Rousey's success inside the cage instead of stripping them away and allowing her to focus on the one thing that it seems like would already be very difficult to do, and that is beating Holly Holm. I mean, I, I can't really blame her for it if the UFC wants to rush her into a UFC 200 title fight rematch, and she's got these opportunities to do movies and make a bunch of money. you got to strike while the iron is hot there, but are you fucking kidding me? We can't give her a little extra time to, you know, maybe get ready for the fight? Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, let me set the scene for you here. Nate Diaz has just defeated Michael Johnson via unanimous decision at UFC on Fox 17. He steps up to be interviewed by UFC color commentator Joe Rogan, who goes on one of his things where he makes a statement, basically disguised as a question, talking about how long Nate Diaz has been out, how good he looked coming back, uh, how he feels about that, etc. The first words out of Nate Diaz's mouth in response to that are, Fuck that. Yes. And then we're off and running. I'm glad you started there because if you didn't, I was going to bring that up as the, I saw that John Anik was kicking around for his podcast, uh, a year, year long, year end awards. And one of them was best post fight speech. And I was like, how could you not give that to Nate Diaz for doing, for saying what we're all thinking <laughs> when somebody, when Joe Rogan asked the same question to everybody? And that is to say, fuck that. And then to go off. On your own tangent. Yeah, no, I appreciate most guys will just ignore the question. If they have something they want to talk about, they'll just ignore the question and not really even acknowledge that they have ignored it. And Nate Diaz, first of all, lets the people of, over at Fox know what's up uh, when you know they got their finger on the cut the audio button because they know what could happen here on network TV. And he lets them know right away, go ahead and cut this one out because I have a few things to say. You know you've gotten yourself into a good post-fight interview when there are multiple highlights, because I will say him saying, fuck that, is the number one highlight. But then he says, Conor McGregor, you're you're taking everything I've worked for. And then the next thing he says, I think he says something like, I'm going to fight your motherfucking ass, which is my number two highlight of this <laughs> post-fight interview, because that's also an awesome thing to say. Like, Nate Diaz can just decide what's going to happen. Uh and then immediately following that, when he refers to all the other guys at the Go Big press conference as clowns, is my third. Because just referring to guys as clowns is awesome. That is something I mean, that's right up your alley. Yeah, well, and to make him making the point that Conor McGregor had so thoroughly punked everybody at the Go Big press conference that now nobody was interested in seeing any of those fights. Right. And if he's also trying to imply that if he had been saying that same stuff to Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz would have done something about it right then and there. I can't say that I don't believe that. No, there's no part of this where you're like, 
hmm, I'm not sure if Nate Diaz is, <laughs> Nate Diaz is giving us the straight dope. Uh, the only part of it I would question is, is after the uh, post-fight press conference interview with Ariel Helwani, where he said he thought that what he said made a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess he's right in a certain kind of way. But let's talk about then that, Ben. Does it make a lot of sense? Because I feel like it does. And this was one of those instances where a Diaz brother jumps on the mic and starts talking. And obviously, uh, the the nuts and bolts of how it comes out of his mouth is maybe not so polished. But the actual thing that he's trying to say is something where you're like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, Conor McGregor will want to fight Nate Diaz because that's the biggest fight. And in parentheses, maybe also one of the easier fights. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it doesn't make any sense at all except for how fun it would be. Like if you if you just presented me like a blind taste test kind of scenario where you told me on paper, there's this dude who is 18 and 10, uh, who has lost, uh, three of his last five He's coming off a one decision win streak. And he wants to be the first one to welcome the featherweight champion who has just been demolishing everybody and is unbeaten in the UFC. I would say, no, that, that does not seem that reasonable at all. And then if you told me who the people actually were involved, that's when I want to see it. Like, it only makes sense that we would all pay for it. That's the only way. Yeah. I think in order to justify it in your mind, you have to embrace the new UFC and you have to basically embrace Conor McGregor as sort of like the new Anderson Silva because they used to let Anderson Silva do that. He went up to 205 to fight James Irvin and went up to 205 to fight Stefan Bonner and, and – uh did he fight Chess Devin Bonner 205? He did, right? Yes. Yeah, and then also uh, Forrest Griffin in the middle there. Uh, and arguably always looked better at that weight, I thought. And maybe that was because, you know, of who the competition was, but it always seemed to, to work out for him. Conor McGregor now obviously steps into the role as the UFC's biggest uh, star, we're led to believe. And, uh, I mean, I think if you can embrace the idea of having this marketable guy that you're just going to let go wherever and take fun, marketable fights – and it does make sense, although um, you might want to see Conor McGregor get past Frankie Edgar before before that, because I think as Joe Rogan, the point Joe Rogan made on his on his podcast the day after UFC 194, when he kind of discounted the idea of Jose, a Jose Aldo rematch, is that uh, there are still super interesting fights out there for Conor McGregor, and obviously uh, Frankie Edgar is that guy. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him. I actually the week after UFC 194, I was walking around and it dawned on me that we probably weren't going to get out of this Conor McGregor thing without seeing him fight at Diaz. I just, <laughs> I, in my mind, I pictured the wrong Diaz. I thought there's no way that we will let Conor McGregor come and go without having him fight Nick Diaz. If Nick is around long enough. Well, uh, I was thinking that if Nate Diaz could somehow convince Rafael Dos Anjos to, to do him a solid and say, you know what? I don't think Conor McGregor should be able to come up and just fight the lightweight champion right away. He should have to have at least one fight at lightweight first. Then boom. Then it's it's then a no-brainer. It. And that's the well the thing about that Nate Diaz fight is that I feel like if you're going to do Frankie Edgar, you need to do Frankie Edgar right now. Frankie Edgar is 34 years old. He's won a bunch of fights. He he kind of deserves a featherweight title shot. Nate Diaz versus Conor McGregor or frankly Nick Diaz versus Conor McGregor is always going to be there. Well, as long as you want it. Nick as Diaz long as versus Conor McGregor will not be there right now because he's got a five-year suspension to worry about, well, uh, at least until he does something about that in right. court. Um, I think maybe if you're Nate Diaz, maybe the thing to do now is to make a demand to say, either give me Conor McGregor or give me Sage Northcutt or don't even bother fucking calling me. And that would be awesome. 
Yeah, that would be awesome. Although it does seem like he is the Diaz brother that they will just bother not calling since this was his first <laughs> fight since December 13th of 2014 uh, when he lost to Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, but let's just let's talk about his performance for a couple minutes before we got to move on, because I feel like he deserves it. This was a good performance against him or against Michael Johnson for him. Uh, and this is another one of those fights that seems to happen so often, especially in this division where you've got. Uh, kind of an up and coming contender in Michael Johnson, who then goes out and and loses an exciting fight, but still like kind of a a, a fairly lopsided unanimous decision to a guy who who is not going to be number one contender anytime soon. Yeah, well, I think that I was watching this one and thinking during the first round, it seemed like it took him a little time to get into full Diaz mode. Did it not? Yeah, I mean, if you were going to give somebody. Or if you were going to give Michael Johnson any of the rounds, the first round it seemed like the one that he won before Nate Diaz really got it turned up to eleven. Well, and also um, and was actually literally pointing at him, yeah, <laughs> and slapping him, just yeah. open hand slapping him in the face. Michael Johnson was saying afterwards that he was making basically a conscious effort not to get sucked into this Diaz game, uh, and he got sucked in anyway. That it worked on him, and you hear so many guys say something to that effect. Uh, or guys like Carlos Condit, who seem to have exerted a tremendous act of will just to stay out of it. You, it must really work. Like it must really work on guys. And you could see how it would. You're, especially you're a pro fighter. You're in there. You're not used to anybody doing that kind of thing to you. And he's doing it. And some part of you is just going, I just got to fucking hit this guy. I can't stand. I got to, I have got to punch this man in the face. And then you end up playing right into his hands there. And it seems like. The irony is that while we like to act like the Diaz brothers are just crazy and out there running around just looking for an excuse to smack somebody in the mouth constantly, they never seem angry during these fights. They seem like they're they're kind of just on the Diaz autopilot doing this thing that they do, and it's everybody else who gets super worked up and plays right into it. As like That seems like the irony that as much as we like to perp- perpetuate this idea of the Diaz's as like mindless barbarians kind of out there uh constantly picking fights with the world they are the ones actually in total control when they actually do this stuff to people yeah well i mean it's like nick diaz said uh you throw the right hook a lot you talk a lot right that's just what happens in a fight (laughs) uh i don't think yeah i think that they're actually smart guys to be honest with you i just think that that they were socialized in a way that does not conform to our societal uh, expectations, right? Like, Outside of Stockton, you mean? Yeah, yes. Uh, because like we said, like when Nate Diaz starts talking, you can tell that he is not a polished speaker and that he's not as articulate as someone like Conor McGregor, for example. And this happens with, with Nick Diaz too, but like, uh, the things that they're saying make sense. Like the things that they're saying are usually right. And Fucking I feel like fighting is a motherfucker, man. Yeah. That uh, shit hurts. Yes. Yeah. And like also in the, in his post fight interview with Ariel Helwani, where he said, uh, he, he wanted to fight big money fights and didn't want to have fights because someone else came along and told him that it was time for him to fight again. Again. That, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You are right. So. Although when he just starts, when he gets to the point where he's trying to make his case as a ninja and by the, by the time you mention double impact yeah. and Lionheart, bro, you're just naming movies. Yes. You're just naming Don't movies. Don't make me read that quote again. <laughs> I will, I'll do it. 
Ninja Guy Den was like the first one, right? Yeah, yes. And then, then we just, we were rolling from there. Anyway, great performance by Nate Diaz, really, coming back after a long time off to beat Michael Johnson. Sets himself up for, for some kind of big fight, I think, if the UFC can, can find him one that, that meets his approval. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the guy from I here hope, on out. I'm going to be sitting around. Who's the, the other dude? Do they got to fight Sage Northcutt now? Oh, I don't know. Did they? I heard that they announced another fight for him. But yeah, I already forgot the dude's name. Which should we just something. say Cody Fister? <laughs> Whoever that dude is, and I'm sure people will look it up and be quick to tell us about it on Twitter. Yeah, I don't want to see anything bad happen to anybody. But if somebody had to get hurt and pull out of a fight, I hope it's that guy. And I hope Come they call on. Nate Diaz. No, that would never happen. Never in a million years. Anyway. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Alistair Overeem's victory over Junior Dos Santos from the UFC on Fox 17 this past weekend was notable, I think, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, let's start off just talking about the fight. I think that we all know when we get a heavyweight co-main event on one of these UFC on Fox cards, we all know the kind of fight that the UFC wants it to be. And for about nine minutes, this fight was not that fight. No. Uh, this was the classic case where you get two dynamic strikers out there who both seem a little bit wary of each other and both seem like uh, they have a game plan to let the other guy attack so that they can counter. Uh, so it was a, a lot of uh, staring for the first, you know, nine plus minutes of this thing. Uh, and then Alistair Overeem knocks Junior Dos Santos out, essentially. So you did get the end result that you want from your heavyweight co-main event. Brian Stan pointed out on Twitter, I believe, uh, maybe late in the first round or after the first round, that anytime you're watching, especially a heavyweight fight, and they show the graphic to show the percentage of who is advancing more uh, in their little stat box, you know you're watching a slow-ass fight. You know not a whole lot is going on there. Yes, advancing, not really included in the unified rules, the way that you score. <laughs> Octagon around. control, man. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that advancing always equates to that, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Th- Alistair Overeem now has won three fights in a row in the UFC after his, like, kind of rocky start in the organization, really, where he went two and three uh, between 2011 and 2014 and uh, uh, also tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone. Um, but this was also the, the final fight on his contract and like several other notable UFC fighters, all Sterling, Benson Henderson, seems like he is going to test the free agent market. Uh, you couldn't really ask to go out in a better way if you're Overeem than to knock out the guy who previous to this had been the number two ranked heavyweight in the UFC's official rankings. And if there's one thing, Ben, that we can say about Overeem, is that we know he will go elsewhere to fight. Yeah, I was thinking about how that might actually be the best negotiating chip that he has right now is his proven willingness to do what the fuck ever. But what are you going to say to Alistair Overeem in negotiations? Like, hey, there's nowhere else for you to go, man. There's no um, compelling, competitive, interesting fights out there for you. He will laugh in your face and tell you that he does not care. He will fight any old tomato can in any old city on the globe as long as they pan him. 
And we know that's, uh, that's true about him. He's absolutely proven. Like, if you told me that Alistair Overeem was thinking, you know what? I'm kind of unscathed coming out of this fight. People aren't happy with Fedor's opponent on New Year's Eve. Make me an offer. I'd believe that. I'd believe that in a heartbeat. Yeah. In fact, I think if you were Alistair Overeem and you were uh, a promotional dynamo on the order of a Nate Diaz, you might say fuck that to whatever question you were asked and then cut a little promo on Fedor Emelianenko. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Alistair Overeem has fought in rings. He fought in pride. He fought at Inoki Bumbaye 2003. Uh he fought Chuck Liddell. He fought, you know, he fought in a bunch of weight classes. Uh, uh, fought Tony Sylvester. Yep. He fought in Strike. He was a Strike Force heavyweight champion. In fact, let's not forget that Alistair Overeem beat Paul Buentello to win the Strike Force heavyweight championship in 2007 and then immediately absconded back to Europe and had his next like dozen fights over there. Well, I mean, I think he was, he was fighting in Japan for a lot of that. And then he would, he would, he would do the thing where he, he yeah, fought, he fought in Japan. He fought in, he fought uh, in Japan, the Netherlands, and then he came back to fight in the Glories, like homegrown promotion right. there. And yeah, let's let's not forget that all of this discussion so far has only been about Alistair Overeem, mixed martial artist. Like, there's a whole other sport that he can compete in that he could offer his services. So, as Which, a free agent, uh, he's a guy who is, you know, you would think is going to have some options, especially a guy who was once real popular in Japan. Uh, maybe it's just going to be a question of who is going to pay him Alistair Overeem money. Right, and that is the point, too, because if you look at the payouts, the reported payouts from UFC on Fox 17, Alistair Overeem, with a $200,000 win bonus, clocks in with the, I'm going to say, unusual final figure of $542,857. A weird figure. It's not easy to read stuff on the podcast. I can only assume that that is Alistair Overeem's lucky number. Yeah. He, he insists on it all the time. Uh, but yeah, that is, especially when you look around elsewhere on the card. I mean, Rafael Dos Anjos got $300,000 with no win bonus. Uh, Donald Cerrone, the guy had been fighting all the damn time, made $79,000. Junior Dos Santos, former UFC heavyweight champion, made $400,000, uh, in a losing effort. Um, one I will point out right before reminding you that Sage Northcutt made 40 and 40 for his last fight. Nate Diaz, 20 and 20. Nate yeah. Diaz had to, had to win his fight after what, like 10 damn years in the UFC after coming in off of the ultimate, as an ultimate fighter winner, uh, to make what Sage Northcutt would have made for losing his second UFC fight. Different, uh, promotional attitudes at work there, I think. Yeah. Well, let's not forget when, uh, Overeem came in and signed his UFC deal back in, in 2011 when, uh, the UFC absorbed strike force he was a pretty hot commodity at the time he'd won like 10 fights in a row and that was included the time that he had gone over there to japan uh and and the netherlands and had several fights and and was wrecking everybody uh and and so yeah we were led to believe at the time that he was a very sought after and big dollar free agent for the ufc to to sign which was one of the things that made his then kind of tepid start in the ufc uh all the more interesting, I, I guess you could say. Now he's kind of rekindled some of that uh, hype, although you know, I think we're always going to think about his losses to guys like Travis Brown and and, and Ben Rothwell. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you could do a lot worse if you're, if you're over him than to hit the market coming off a, a TKO over Junior Dos Santos. Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting to see 
how this plays out for him and how that also further influences this trend of guys being more willing to test the free agent market. Because uh, I think that it's there's got to be some point where you get too many free agents for what the MMA market at that level can really realistically absorb, right? Overeem's kind of a wild card there, uh, and depending on some of the other guys that... You know, the guys like Aljamain Sterling, I think that there should be a real legitimate interest from somebody like Bellator, uh, cause there you get a guy who can promote himself and already kind of has a foothold there, or a guy like Benson Henderson. Um, but I think that the more you see guys like Overeem doing that, I, th- the other people have to take notice and have to realize, okay, look, that's how you really get paid, is in s- some form of a bidding war. If you're just saying, I'll take whatever you give me and whatever contract you offer me, I'll, I'll sign my name to it the, that very day, you're kind of putting a cap on your own earning potential. And hopefully, you know, you'd think that what we've heard of their business philosophies in the past, it seems like nobody would be able to appreciate that like UFC executives, at least in theory. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's how they'll feel about it. I'm sure they'll appreciate <laughs> the hell out of it. Uh Fact check me here. Aljamain Sterling, Benson Henderson, and Alistair Overeem are all Malkikawa guys. Are they not? They all have the, the same agent? Um, I think they I don't do. know about Overeem right now, but because he's kind of bounced around a little bit. Yeah, but. well, I'm sure that someone will let us know. That's yes. that's what social media is good for. But that's kind of interesting if if that's right and if these three guys all have the same agent and they're all fighting out their contracts to, to test the free agent market, uh, that same agent we, we might uh, – you know, remind everyone also works with the UFC light heavyweight champion, John Jones, who was recently, you know, made some comments to Ariel Helwani that didn't sound the most supportive of the UFC's business practices. So, but I mean, I'm sure you've seen it and I've seen it when talking to agents and especially talking to agents about the kind of stories where they don't, nobody's in a hurry to put their name on them. Uh, you can really see a divide between a lot of the agents out there of who is succeeding because they're a good agent who puts their clients interests first and delivers for their clients and who is succeeding because they stay on good terms with the UFC. Right. Um, and the really good agents, I think, don't worry as much about the UFC, especially it also helps to have the kind of clients where the UFC just can't really get too mad at you and tell you to shut up and go away. But the ones who are, are not just thinking like, Hey, I have to think in this particular negotiating situation about future negotiating situations I'm going to have with my other fighters. Uh, the ones who are putting the interests of that specific fighter first, those are the really good agents. Those are the people you'd want to have if you were a fighter. Right, yeah. I would think that every every agent would be telling his or her fighters to, to test the free agent market, given that that's how sports works. Uh, I just thought it was interesting, if if we are correct, that all three of those guys have the same agent, then you could see a trend emerging there. Um, let's talk briefly about Junior Dos Santos before we have to end the show uh, obviously a former UFC heavyweight champion and a guy who I think even now post Overeem still pretty highly thought of in the, in the heavyweight division, even though he's now two and three in his last, uh, five fights and is coming off, uh, kind of an ugly TKO to Cain Velasquez and now a TKO to Alistair Overeem. And, uh, you know, clearly you don't want to, underscore how bad it probably sucks to get punched in the face by Alistair Overeem. Uh, but it looked like a, like he had JDS wobbled a few times in this fight and then obviously eventually kind of drops him clean with a punch. Uh, man, how worried are we at this point about the future career of Junior Dos Santos? You know, when 
there was a conversation after this fight about whether that stoppage was too quick. You know, where he goes down, when he gets hit right there, you think, oh, God, that's it. But Dos Santos, as we've seen, he can take those shots where it looks like that ought to end your night and still, in some kind of form, scramble back up and continue fighting. And he did not like the stoppage there, and I have no doubt that he he probably would have been able to keep fighting in some form because he's just that tough. But I also, that was one where I was thinking to myself, even if that's an early stoppage, please go ahead and make it because I just don't know if I want to see another one of those from Junior Dos Santos. That's the one where you think, how many of these can you do before you've crossed kind of a a final line into whatever waits on the other side? And that, you'd hate to see it to happen to anybody, but you'd especially hate to see it happen to Junior Dos Santos, who was such a nice dude. Yeah. A good dude. Yeah. And I was reminded during this fight, also one of those guys that has a terrible face for getting beat up. Like, he gets punched twice, and, and suddenly he just looks like he's been in a five-round war. Yeah. No, bleeding he, out his nose. He's bleeding out the side of his face. I mean, and some Starting of that, to swell up and contort everywhere. Yeah. If no, you he could does, take Charlie Brenneman's hair and put it on Junior Dos Santos's face, you would have, like, the, the combination of the worst fighter just visually for getting punched. That would get MMA banned. Yes. You'd, like would a referee would, would step in and call the fight off after one punch landed just because <laughs> of the swelling and the way the hair shook around. He does get that face where after a couple good punches where he starts to look like somebody uh, has left like a soccer ball out in the rain and it started to get a little warped and weird. And I have wondered in the past whether that's just what his face do when it gets punched or if that's a developed thing from your face getting punched too much. I don't know. The the Cain Velas- the last two fights with Cain Velasquez, those alone seemed like the kind of things that could just take years off your career. Yeah. Uh, then he had that fight with Stipe Miocic. Um, then he gets knocked out by Overeem. I, I, it's one of those situations where you wonder if you're just going to get to a toughness being the worst problem you have. Yeah. Kind of deal with Junior Dos Santos. That's a, that's a good way to say it about Junior Dos Santos. All right, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we can... We'll wrap up the show. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, I don't know. I think I talked to you about this, right? That Dana White on Twitter um, reminded you why even when he is praising his friends, he can't help but be super Dana White about it all. Uh, and this one came about when uh, he was praising uh, UFC vice president of uh, regulatory affairs. I believe that's how they phrase it, right? Uh, Mark Ratner. Um, who was inducted into uh, the Boxing Hall of Fame um, last week. And Dana White's tweet on the matter is, here. here's how the tweet reads, congrats to one of the most respected men in the history of sports, wow. Mark Ratner, for his back. induction into the Boxing Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not saying Mark Ratner is not a highly respected man in his industry. I mean, he also is the dude who was the regulator at the Nevada Commission and then went to work for the people that he had been regulating. Uh, but very respected man in this in this industry, has a good reputation and a good name in it. I'm just saying that Dana White being the kind of dude who, when he wants to praise you, praises you so highly that even you have to feel weird about it, that's just the most Dana White thing ever. That just proves that... There's some element in this man's personality that he cannot possibly turn off, whether he is berating somebody, trying to hype a fight, or just trying to say that his friend did a good job. He can't limit himself to just effusive praise. He must cross that line into just downright, 
absolutely incredible, kind of embarrassingly over-the-top praise. Yeah. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's how Dana White do. Well, Ben, uh, our neighbors to the east, two and a half, three hours away from from the home base of the co-main event podcast, uh, it seems like just be keeping it real Spokane. You mean the west? Yes, the west. What did I say, east? Yes. Jesus Christ. That'd be like Billings. This show has really taken it out of me. And they they are keeping it real Billings yes, over there are. anyway. Either either direction you would drive from our town, you're kind of screwed. Uh, but yeah, two and a half hours, three hours to the west is Spokane, Washington, where this past weekend Ultimate Fighter 18 winner Juliana Pena was arrested early Sunday morning after an alleged bar fight uh, and was, was put in jail overnight, now faces two counts of uh, assault, which carry a punishment of up to one year in jail or and a $5,000 fine. All of this, according to the story written by Stephen Morocco over there on MMA Junkie. Now, Ben, I'm just saying we don't know what happened here. Maybe Juliana Pena was in the right. Maybe she was coming to the aid of a friend. Uh, but I also I just want to read the last paragraph in this Stephen Morocco story, okay. which reads in a 2014 interview, Pena described a bar fight that resulted when she touched a woman with a fake zombie hand and was pushed to the ground. Her teammate, tough 15 vet, Sam Cecilia reportedly knocked out three men before they fled the scene, fled the scene. Now, like I said, we don't know what happened in, in this instance, but I guess I'm just saying I'm starting to develop a profile here. <laughs> and when you're out, I just just want to make sure I get this right. When you are out touching a woman with a fake zombie hand, I don't know, man. That makes me feel like you might be kind of culpable in all this stuff. Well, if you've got the fake zombie hand, you're what not just going to keep it to yourself. I guess not. Anyway, that's going to do it for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. We'll be back next week uh, to look ahead, I think, to uh, Robbie Lawler and Carlos Condit. That's right. Is that what happens? That'll be fun. And, uh, and yeah. So join us for that. Ask also, me. Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. Oh, that's right. This Christmas is time the Christmas is coming show. Up. This is the closest you're going to get to a this CME is holiday the special. Main event podcast Christmas special. Yeah. Hey. I would have gotten some carols together if I would have known that. Anyway, we're done for now. We're through. We are out. You know the thing I like about the specifying that she got into a fight after she touched a woman with a fake zombie hand is the use of the word fake there, just so we did not mistakenly believe that it was a real zombie hand. She had a real zombie hand hung around her neck so that the other zombies would not be able to smell her. Yeah. That's how it works. That wards off the other zombies. Yeah. That and Sam Cecilia, just, just for, just for that. And then you touch